0: The Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 25, A Fire in the South. In 2080 BCE, it has been over 120 years since Pepe II, the last great ruler of the Old Kingdom, passed into the realm of Osiris. Falling prey to local power struggles, Egypt is no longer unified under a single monarch. In the delta and northern reaches of the Nile Valley, a family of minor kings holds power. Ruling from Heracleopolis, these kings, known collectively as the House of Keti, form Egypt's ninth and 10th dynasties, and dominate the north of the country during this part of the First Intermediate Period. In episode 24, we saw the general situation, which allowed this family to take control of such territory. Today, we continue our discussion of the northern kings, and then turn our attention to the affairs of the south. Two great works of the first intermediate period are our subjects in this episode. The first, called The Instructions for King Merikare, is the ancient equivalent of a political manifesto promulgated by this ruler, to publicise his intended policies. The second is an autobiography from the south, created by a local ruler named Tifi. Rising from a minor governorship in one of the most southern of provinces, Tifi created a small personal kingdom stretching northward to Thebes. His testament is one of the primary sources for understanding the rise of the southern kings, and provides the perfect backdrop to the great wars which are about to erupt between the house of Keti in the north and the rulers of Thebes in the south. Back in episode 17, we met an old kingdom official named Tar-Hotep, whose great contribution to Egyptian culture was a set of maxims and instructions on moral living and good behavior the maxims of tahotep are the earliest known example of egyptian didactic literature a genre whose sole purpose is to educate and instruct by the mid first intermediate period over 200 years after tahotep the traditions and forms of didactic literature have evolved significantly the instructions addressed to King Merikare are the finest example of the genre yet produced. They are more nuanced, and include discussions of conflict and strife, which echo the political situation in which Merikare lived. King Merikare was probably the son of a Heracleopolitan king named Keti Third, and the text claims to be a set of instructions laid down by Ketty for the benefit of his son. Miriam Lektheim, one of the most significant translators of the 20th century, thought that it was more likely the text was composed by Meri Kauré himself, or at least during his reign. Rather than being a set of instructions passed from father to son, she considered the text a political manifesto published by Meri Kauré to strengthen his regime and promote his values throughout the territory he ruled. So, assuming the text was composed by Merikare, and simply written as though his father had passed it to him, we can analyse the writings and get a sense of what the House of Keti were aiming to achieve at this crucial juncture in their history. The first and most obvious concern of Merikare, was suppressing resistance to his rule i quote from the text the hothead is an inciter of citizens he creates factions among the young if you find that citizens adhere to him suppress him for he is a rebel the speaker is a troublemaker for the city curb the multitude suppress its heat End quote. this would not be out of place in your average modern dictatorship Meri Kha-Rei, apparently having difficulty keeping the population totally compliant with his family's rule, promoted the idea of suppression first and foremost. We can judge him by modern standards and denounce his methods, but I would not be so quick to condemn Mary rei myself. Living in a period when the Nile Valley was split between at least two major factions, and several smaller groups. It was natural that dissent and dissatisfaction with the current situation emerged in the populace. Facing the threat of a rising power in the South, which we'll discuss later, Marie Carré was perhaps naturally inclined to suppress this discontent where possible, and as soon as it occurred. The texts that follow also show us a far more reasonable approach to enforcing his rule, one focused far more on skill in speech than skill in war. Quote, May you be justified before the God, that a man may say, even in your absence, that you punish in accordance with the crime. Good nature is a man's heaven. The cursing of the furious is painful. If you are skilled in speech, you will win. The tongue is a king's sword. Speaking is stronger than all fighting. End quote. I like this passage. I think it is as valid today as it was in the first intermediate period. It also reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from The Art of War by the Chinese general and philosopher Sun Tzu, who lived around 500 BCE writing a lengthy discussion of military affairs, and their relevance to philosophy, good rule, and the perfection of one's art, Sun Tzu made a comment that is very similar to this one by Mary Kare. In the practical art of war, the best thing of all is to take the enemy's country, whole and intact. To shatter and destroy it is not so good. Therefore, to fight and conquer in all your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. Thus, the highest form of generalship is to frustrate the enemy's plans. End quote. Compare that to Mary Karré, who said, If you are skilled in speech, you will win. The tongue is a king's sword. Speaking is stronger than all fighting, and you can see why I love these philosophers so much. And I do consider Mary Carey to be a philosopher, in the literary sense. While the Egyptians may not have developed systems of thought like Aristotelian ethics or Socratic dialogue, they formed nuanced and valuable ideas of their own, and you can learn as much about life from the ancient Egyptians as you can from any modern self-help book. But I digress. Mary Kare's political manifesto served both to publicise his ideas on kingship, and also to guide his servants in the art of governance. Ideas such as the ones I have quoted, about suppressing dissent and overcoming opposition by skilful argument, are more relevant to internal administration than to foreign relations. Rather than promoting war, the instructions emphasize conciliation and education, harmony over conflict. The wise one is a school to the nobles. Those who know that he knows will not attack him. No crime occurs when he is near. Justice comes to him, shaped in the sayings of the ancestors. Imitate your fathers, your ancestors. See, their words endure in books. Open them, read them, copy their knowledge. He who is educated becomes skilled. Do not be evil. Kindness is good. The idea of the king acting as an example to his followers is not a new one. In many ways it has been present ever since the beginnings of Egyptian kingship. Right back in the pre-dynastic period, ceremonial art would record the king as a founder of towns, digging irrigation and creating agriculture. From these more personal and immediate ideas, Egyptian thought has developed over a thousand years into the philosophical musings we see here. The premium on education is a concept usually only discussed in the context of the middle and new kingdoms when scribes composed texts that praised written knowledge, and literacy above all other skills. But the teachings of Meri Kare show us just how powerful these ideas were, even in the darkest days of the Egyptian kingship. While he could not extend his authority past Abydos, Merikare nevertheless put great value on upholding the traditions of his ancestors. Indeed, It is probable that Merikare was even buried at Saqqara, near to the pyramid of Teti, first king of dynasty 6. While Merikare's pyramid has not yet been discovered, references to such a pyramid are found in the titles of 12th dynasty officials from the region, suggesting that a cult to Merikare existed here, and lasted until the high middle kingdom. Such veneration, perhaps, was part of the king's positive legacy, and apparently beneficent character. That his priorities were benign is conveyed through further quotes from the instructions. Do not be evil. Kindness is good. Make your monument endure through love of you. Increase the people. Befriend the town. The god will be praised for your donations. Respect the nobles, sustain your people. Strengthen your borders and your frontier patrols. It is good to work for the future. One respects the life of the foresighted. End quote. Mary instructions would make a great tattoo. The emphasis on foresight is something I feel we can all get behind. Planning for the future, and taking care to look after those who depend upon you, In this case, the nobility and the people. These are common motifs in human philosophy. With good reason. The king continues. Advance your officials, so that they act by your laws. He who has wealth at home will not be partial. He is a rich man who desires nothing. The man who wants does not speak justly. The unrighteous is the one who says, I wish I had... He inclines to him who will pay him End quote. judicial corruption was certainly a feature of society in ancient Egypt as it has been in every human culture throughout history attempts to combat such practices appear frequently in the historical narrative and become particularly prominent in times when the king's power was weak for meri the emphasis on curbing greed and desire among his nobles was not an attack on the poor, but rather a simple recognition that the desire to possess more can incite humans to immoral behavior. In the first intermediate period, such concerns were particularly important, because the king was reliant upon provincial nobles for his power. The end of the 6th dynasty had seen the rural elite gain a level of unprecedented wealth and independence. In order to keep control of their kingdom, the house of Keti depended upon the consent of these wealthy families. Meri Kare's priorities might therefore be viewed somewhat cynically as an attempt to hold on to his authority, and odds are there was an element of this in the philosophy. But... Merikare took his ideas much further than the simple need to carry favour with a provincial elite. His emphasis on good governance and justice place him among the great teachers of Egyptian ethics, and how to rule in accordance with Ma'at. Quote, Raise your youths, and the royal residents will love you. Increase your subjects with recruits. See, your city is full of new growth. Advance your officials. Promote your soldiers. Enrich the young men who follow you. Provide them with goods. Endow them with fields. Reward them with herds. Do not prefer the highborn to the commoner. Choose a man on account of his skills. Then all crafts are done. End quote. The enrichment and rewarding of loyal service goes back in time to the early dynastic, and it was not altered significantly during the First Intermediate Period. For Mary Merikare's regime, the emphasis on recruitment and the rewarding of loyal service had two components. On the one hand, it was a way to keep wealthy families and men loyal to the House of Keti. On the other, it was the most effective way to maintain a strong defence against any threat from outside their kingdom. As we will see shortly, such priorities were sensible and necessary given the rising power of Thebes around this time. To further strengthen his position, Merikare's regime emphasised defence and strength in military affairs. Although he valued skilful speech, the king could not ignore the practical needs of his kingdom, and conflict was a part of this ongoing struggle to maintain the house of Keti. If your southern border is attacked, the bowmen will put on the armour. The foe loves destruction and misery. He who is silent towards violence diminishes the offerings. There is no one who has no enemy. Do not kill one who is close to you, whom you have favoured. Divine are they who follow the king. Make yourself loved by everyone. A good character is remembered when his time has passed. May you be called, he who ended the time of trouble, by those who come afterward in the house of Keti. I have told you the best of my thoughts. Act according to what is set before you. End quote. Unity between king and subject was stressed to the last by this philosopher-ruler. And an emphasis on good governance was his final word to his heirs. Merikare wanted his words to be the linchpin of policy for the house of Keti. And were it not for historical inconvenience, he may have succeeded in his wish. For Merikare, and the kings of Heracleopolis... Such attitudes may have established good relations with those whom they ruled, but what about those outside their kingdom? From Abydos to Aswan, we have almost totally ignored the affairs of Upper Egypt in our discussion so far. Today, we change that, and direct our attention to the affairs of the south, and the great conflicts which occurred between local warlords of Upper Egypt. Around the year 2080, no one is exactly sure when a political fire began in the south, when a minor provincial governor named Unk Tifi decided to expand his dominion through military means. At ancient Hephat, modern day Moala, Unk Tifi oversaw a small region of land just south of Thebes. He lived autonomously and although he utilised royal titles such as seal-bearer, lector-priest, and general, this local prince was essentially independent of a king. This suited Anktifi just fine, and in a lovely tomb at Moala, he recorded his accomplishments for posterity, making special mention of his contributions to communities suffering from famine or poor harvest. He also acted like a mini-king, attributing his appearance and effectiveness to the support of Horus, god of kingship and sustainer of the kingdom. Claiming that Horus desired Unctifi to expand his power, he recorded the conquest of a town called Edfu, where the cult of Horus seems to have been particularly strong. Apparently, he did this at the god's bidding. Quote, Horus brought me to the region of Edfu, to re-establish it. And I did it. For Horus wished the community to be re-established, and he brought me to it for this purpose. I found this place inundated like a marsh, abandoned by its owner, in the grip of a rebel, under the control of a wretch. I made a man embrace the slayer of his father, and the slayer of his brother so as to re-establish the town of Edfu. How happy was the day on which I found well-being in this town. End quote. Now, you may not think much of the text on the surface. Anktifi comes to a new region, claims to restore its well-being and sustenance, and praises the god for his involvement in the escapade. But between the lines is the record of an aggressive takeover of territory, initiated by this local governor resulting in the conquest of an important ceremonial centre. To commit such an act was not only an exceeding of his own authority, but also a dangerous feat to perform, one which risked bringing the attention of the northern kings upon Unctifi. But there were more immediate concerns than the northern kings. At Thebes, a new family of rulers had emerged to claim authority over the south. The Theban kings, descended from a man named Intef, are known collectively as the 11th dynasty in the Egyptian chronology. But, because they were roughly contemporary with the 10th dynasty in the north, I prefer to ditch the dynastic system during this period, and refer to the Theban kings as the House of Intef. The House of Intef emerged at Thebes, soon coming into conflict with ankhtifi who recorded the affair in his autobiography, Quote, I went downstream to the country west of Armant, and I found that all the forces of Thebes and Coptos had attacked the fortresses of Armant. I reached the west bank of the Theban province. My bold crack troops ventured to the west and east of the Theban land, looking for an open battle, but no one dared to come out from Thebes because they were afraid of my troops. End quote. victories were short-term successes against the rising power of Thebes. The house of Intef had allied with the rulers of Koptos and formed a confederation. For Anctify, it was just a matter of time before his own principality was swallowed by this growing force. Although Anctify was able to invade Theban territory, He lacked the strength to attack the town itself. His troops marched about ineffectually, unable to force the Thebans into a pitched battle. Such a stalemate aided the Thebans in the long run, for they were able to conserve their resources and eventually push back against Unctifi. That they were victorious is made evident by the sudden disappearance of Unctifi's united territory following his death replaced by the overarching authority of Thebes the Theban king Intef i proclaimed his authority by taking on the titles and names of a full-blown ruler his Horus name Saheru tawi translates to the one who has brought calm to the two lands a rather presumptuous epithet given that it would be more than sixty years before peace returned to egypt in the form of a united country. But the Theban kings were now in control of Upper Egypt, from Elephantine north to Abydos. Naturally, it was only a matter of time before they came into conflict with the house of Keti. If we remember the instructions of Merikare, the king made reference to warfare and the assembling of troops. This was even described in terms of prophecy with the northern kings marshalling their strength against both southern rulers and the threat of Asiatic nomads from the east. Troops will fight troops, as the ancestors foretold. When the Asiatics were a fortified wall, I breached their strongholds. I made Lower Egypt attack them. I captured their settlements. I seized their cattle until they abhorred Egypt. The region of Memphis totals ten thousand men. The borders are firm, the garrisons valiant. If your southern border is attacked, the bowmen will put on armour. Build fortifications in the northland, the foe loves destruction and misery. End quote. The stage was set for a great conflict between north and south, between the house of Keti and the house of Intef. Egypt now divided firmly between two ruling powers, was about to enter a decisive period of civil war, from which would emerge the foundations of the Middle Kingdom. Join us next episode, when the Southern Fire rises to attack the North, and the First Intermediate Period reaches its bloody climax.